North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. I think in the wake of the president's decision not to agree to a bad deal, we're going to see a lot of potential decisions coming out of North Korea, whether they're serious about the talks, whether they want to get back into them, and, and fundamentally, whether they're committed to giving up their nuclear weapons. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Mr. President, is North Korea breaking a promise by rebuilding a key missile launch site? Well, I would be very disappointed if that were happening. It's a very early report. We're the ones that put it out. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. In this very first live recording episode of The Impossible State, we bring you a cadre of special guests. On the panel in front of a live audience at CSIS was Ambassador Alexander Vershbaugh, who was the U.S. ambassador to South Korea from 2005 to 2008. CSIS Korea experts Victor Cha and Sumi Terry also joined. And last but not least, David Nakamura, a Washington Post White House reporter who was able to ask Kim Jong-un a question at the recent summit in Hanoi, also joined. Welcome to everybody. Uh, thanks for being here at CSIS. We are doing something a little bit different today. We're taping live our podcast, The Impossible State. Um, usually, Victor and Sue and me and Mike Green and others are taping The Impossible mm -hmm. State. Sometimes we have guests like Ambassador Vershbaugh or the great Washington Post reporter Dave Nakamura, my, my good friend who, you know, I desperately want to see him cover sports again yeah. one day because <laughs> I, I love like reading him when he covers sports. You know, we, uh, we we taped this down in our studio downstairs, but now uh, by the magic of having our producer, Yumi Araki here, that's Yumi over there. For those of you who can't see her on the podcast, she's sitting off to our left. We're able to, to do the podcast live in front of you. And we're really lucky today to have with us Ambassador Sandy Vershbaugh, who's a distinguished fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Among many other things, he was former U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea. We have Dr. Sumi Terry, uh, senior fellow at CSIS Korea Chair. She's former senior analyst at the CIA, and former National Security Council staffer. As I mentioned before, Mr. Dave Nakamura, who's a White House correspondent for The Washington Post. And of course, Dr. Victor Cha, who's our senior advisor and Korea Chair here at CSIS. Victor, let's start with the news. We, we had a little bit of news this week. It started off Tuesday night, um, I got a call from Victor late in the afternoon Tuesday. Victor was rushing around, I was rushing around, and there was some news that we had some images that showed a bit of activity in North Korea. What was that? Yeah, we found that there were images, commercial satellite images, of the Sohei uh, satellite launch facility, right, uh, where there was activity there, particularly in three areas of the launch facility. Uh, that uh, was significant and notable activity given that the facility had been pretty much dormant after some initial disassembly following the Singapore summit. So our, the initial reaction, I think, among not just us, but other analysts who looked at this was that you know, these were deliberate efforts by North Korea in response to the inconclusive results of the Hanoi summit to send a message, really, to, the, to President Trump and the world. Now, this morning, though, Thursday morning, we got a new imagery report. And what did that show? And why, why is this site so important? 
So we had new imagery. I'm going to put it up on the screen here today. So we had new imagery from yesterday. For those of you listening to the podcast, you can't see it in front of you because you're listening. You can look at Beyond Parallel, our website, or CSIS.org. It's both there. In both places, yes. Yeah. So this is imagery from March 6th of the SOHE Satellite Launch Facility that shows essentially that they have, since the last images on March 2nd, they have essentially continued activity at both the vertical engine test stand, the rail transport infrastructure, uh, and some of the oxidizing roofs of the oxidizing buildings. To make it very um, simple, they essentially reassembled all the things they disassembled after Singapore. And of course, we'll watch the site for more activity, but what we refer to it as their snapback. They basically snapped back from the initial actions they took uh, after Singapore uh, in terms of disassembly of the SOHE satellite launch facility. For those who aren't familiar with this, this is not a ballistic missile facility. It's a facility from which they launch civilian space launch vehicles to put satellites into orbit. Um, it came most in the news, I think, in 2012 when they uh, launched the rocket directly after concluding negotiations with the Obama administration on something called the Leap Day deal that eventually fell through. But it's still significant from a strategic perspective because uh, under UN Security Council Resolution 2087, North Korea is not permitted to launch um, satellites because uh, they are using ballistic missile technology to put those uh, payload vehicles into orbit. Um, so uh, that makes this a significant site for us to watch in terms of the missile threat. So Ambassador Verschbach, give us your reaction to this. Why is this so significant? What does this mean for the Trump administration and their negotiations with the North Koreans? At this point, we're not sure whether this is a significant event or just kind of the North Koreans letting off a little steam after the disappointment at the Hanoi summit. Uh, it does look like it happened after the summit, so you know it's not an accident. But on the other hand, uh, we don't yet have any signals from the North that they're breaking off talks. They actually accentuated the positive at the end of the uh, summit meeting, even though they were quite surprised that the president walked away from the table. So I think it's uh, too early to draw any conclusions about whether this spells the end of negotiations or this is just kind of some... some uh, maneuvering that uh, doesn't foreclose the possibility that talks will resume in the next few weeks. Sue, what's your reaction to this? And then I want to get to Dave, because Dave was actually traveling with President Trump and, and in Hanoi for the summit. For now, I think Ambassador is absolutely right. I, I don't think it's necessarily North Korea's return to provocations. I don't think this should be taken as a sign that they're going to return to missile testing or nuclear testing. I think right now it's a signal they're trying to send uh, to, to show their resolve. Um, but it's not only a signal they're trying to send to President Trump as a pressure tactic. I think it's a signal they're also trying to send to President Moon Jae-in. Uh, this is something that they've agreed to with South Koreans also after Pyongyang Declaration. So that's getting the South Korea to sort of say, hey, you need to do either intermediary role and fix this, or trying to pressure the South Koreans to sort of get off uh, and, 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 and for South Koreans to improve the inter-Korea relations and move forward on inter-Korea projects, like reopening Kaesong and whatnot. So I think North Koreans are also trying to pressure the South Koreans. And it'll be interesting to see what South Korea's response is going to be, because this is going to put President Moon Jae-in in a very difficult situation. 
Dave is the first U.S. journalist to act, actually ask Kim Jong-un a question. <laughs> and get an answer. And get an answer. <laughs> and be in return to tell about it. So, so, so okay. How, how tall is he? You know, he was sitting down two out of the three times that I saw him. Yeah. And the third time he was obscured by Trump a little bit because he was across a pool at the Metropole Hotel walking on a sort of stage photo op, uh, the leader's walk, uh, which they met Pompeo. It's a little hard to tell. He seemed to have a healthy glow, though, on TV. He looked like he had had, you know, <laughs> facial, you know, he's ready when for you, the summer. When you have that distinct of a look, maybe him and Trump, I mean, they look like they do in person, yeah. right? I mean, you yeah. know, and a little bit cartoon character like in that you see, you know, so much on TV or movies or uh, caricatures. And so when you're in the room um, the first time, you know, we were, there was a lot of anticipation for us in the press pool, 13 uh, White House reporters, uh, and then some North Korea state media, uh, all dressed in the same outfit with their um, lapel pins featuring the uh, the dear leader and the great leader. Uh, they all came in. They didn't shout any questions, by the way, the North Korea. No, press. I um, guess not. Yeah. But when we were let in, you know, it's a, it's a mad it's a mad scramble for positioning and trying to get a scene. I had to move over. I almost knocked over a North Korean um, a mounted uh, a video camera. I didn't want to do that, so I moved over a little bit. But when you're then you sort of see the leaders right there. They're just already in the in the space, and uh, it's a little bit jarring. Um, and then you're trying to figure out like, how do I get a question in? When is my moment? I waited till you know Trump took a question, and when he stopped talking, I figured that was the moment. And, so what, and what did you ask him? I wrote a story about this. Like, what do you ask a dictator? You know, right. what's, what's your moment? You know, is it the human rights? You get right to it. You know, a lot of the questions we shout, sometimes you have to think about public perception, especially if you don't think you're going to get an answer. What are you what, you're spending your time asking? Uh, we went through all of that. Um, you know, there was a sense that, you know, for Trump, you know, he had gotten angry the day before about some Michael Cohen questions yelled at the dinner uh, or the before the dinner. Um, right. He actually yeah, kicked some kicked people out. Some reporters yeah. out. So we discussed Trump. Uh, he was going to have a news conference. So we figured he could take some off topic questions. So we would ask him about the state of the summit, I figured that would be smart for Kim too. You know, so I basically said, you know, Chairman Kim, do you are you confident you're going to get a deal? And he looked at me, and I, as I wrote my sort of piece, I give a little thumbs up, not to establish any kind of like camaraderie, but to say that, you know, do you feel good? Do you feel good about a deal? There's a language barrier. And then he, I noticed in the replay of the video that uh, Trump's uh, interpreter leans over across the table and interpreted the question into Korean, and I knew I had a we had a shot at an answer. And Kim, you know, to his credit, gave us an answer. And. What's it like being in that situation, covering uh, a historic summit, pretty surreal summit, as you as you alluded to? And what was the president's mood like? A lot of people paid a lot of attention to that because, you know, the big elephant in the room was the Michael Cohen's yes. hearing was going on at right. the same time. Here in the United States, we saw split screens of, you know, President Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, on one side of the screen and Michael Cohen testifying yep. on Capitol Hill on the other side of the screen. The president likes the he likes deals, but he likes the show, too, and the big moment, the big reveal. And he had built up a lot of anticipation for the Singapore summit. And I think he felt that went well. And he was able to tout it was a small four paragraph agreement, but he was able to show and the big signature, uh, that moment he liked. And uh, we were on, you know, basically on an island on Southeast Asia, uh, and he had sort of a command of the media there and really the whole world. So he was trying to repeat that. Uh, there was clearly pressure in the White House knew it and the president knew it to get a better, more of a deal. I mean, those specifics, and that's where we saw a breakdown. But uh, in terms of the atmosphere, I think um, the, the White House was certainly concerned about how the president would react in real time to Michael Cohen, and we saw it play out. Uh, basically, as you would suspect, the president had a bilateral meeting with the Vietnamese. Um, there were a couple different meetings there. And as soon as he got back to the hotel for some downtime before the sort of meet and greet with Kim Jong-un the day before the main, main day of the summit, uh, the president started tweeting. And he tweeted about, uh, you know, uh, Danang Dick Blumenthal, you know, as he says degradingly uh, about the senator. Uh, and then he also started tweeting about Michael Cohen. Uh, and so um, you could see where his attention was. We don't know how late the president stayed up the night before. There were some reports that he may have been you know, communicating with people back in Washington during the hearing. So uh, 
Um, we don't know how well rested or focused he was really on, um, you know, the, the big day, which, uh, you know, was that Thursday. Safe to say he was in executive time. He was in <laughs> lots of executive time, uh, always built in. Right. Didn't President Trump tweet, though, that something about the timing? He said it was a bad timing to yes. hold it together. And by the way, maybe that contributed to the that. walk. He did I mean, after so we got back. Yeah. He himself hinted at that there is some correlation. History, though, I he think, should yeah. thank Michael Cohen in that case because walking was the right thing to do. Maybe it was, but it seemed a little revisionist by uh, the president to, to say to blame. Uh, he's trying to put a lot of uh, blame on Democrats right now. I wrote a, a story today talking about both on immigration and uh, on trade. The president's gotten some some rough news uh, this week about uh, the numbers at the border and the trade, trade deficit, deficit growing, uh, but also in North Korea that he's tried to sort of uh, hoist some of the hoist some of the blame onto Democrats in every case. So before we continue, um, you all have note cards on your seats, and the way we're going to take some questions during the podcast from the audience is if you could write down on your questions, they'll be collected by our staff, and we'll get to a few of them as we go along. Victor, let me ask you this. President Trump still seems to expect that his personal relationship with Kim is going to yield results in these negotiations, despite what happened at Hanoi. Is that a smart strategy, or should he empower his people, Pompeo, Steve Began, what should he do now? I don't know if it's a smart strategy, but it's his strategy. Yeah. And um, he's been very consistent in defending the North Korean leader's intentions, uh, uh, you know, since Singapore. Um, I thought that his uh, response to the reports about Sohei uh, yesterday were uncharacteristically sober. Right. He said, uh, you know, he hopes it's not true. You know, he doesn't think it's true, but we'll, we'll see. He Man, said he, he we, would be disappointed. He would be disappointed. And uh, we had an imagery report about some of the operational missile bases that were undisclosed by North Korea. He immediately tweeted angrily that that's just all fake news. This time he was like, you know, he didn't didn't deny yeah. that this could be happening. So, so to be clear, when we reported uh, a couple months ago that there were up to 20 operational missile sites that were undeclared. Um, David Sanger of the New York Times reported it, and President Trump tweeted that David Sanger's article was fake news. He did not say CSIS's images were fake right, yeah. news. So just to clarify. Right. But but in this case, he, he didn't dispute either the reporting. Uh, Andrew Mitchell report, of NBC reported it first. He didn't dispute, uh, of course, our research here at CSIS. So the pictures themselves don't lie, except if you're in North Korea where they airbrush. They airbrush stuff out. But um, so I think in terms of where we go from here, yes, I mean, you know, one option is to empower um, the working level people to try to take what was left from Hanoi and either chop it up into smaller pieces, right? Whether it's their demand for the lifting of five UN Security Council resolution sanctions from 2016, 2017, or whether it's our demand for Yongbyon Plus. Right, you can chop them up to smaller pieces or you can try to get the bigger deal. In either case, that really just takes us back to the sort of negotiations that we have been in for the past 25 years. So that is not a particularly good outcome. The other possibility, and I don't discount this at all, is that things could get worse before they get better. And that is because I think one of the lessons I think that both sides took away from the summit um, is that pressure works, right? From our perspective, the fact that the North Koreans fingered these five UN Security Council resolutions is clearly showing that they see that pressure as troublesome, right? And then you had um, Ambassador Bolton out there saying, hey, we could increase pressure. And then you see in terms of our imagery that the North Korean response is to go back to some of these sites that they know bother us. 
whether it's a nuclear test site or the SOHE satellites launch site, and say, look, we're going to start doing some stuff here too. So I feel like that's certainly one of the lessons that they both walked away from this meeting with. And, um, and so, you know, I worry a little bit that this could get worse before it gets better because both sides want to try to figure out how to get to the other, the other side back to the table. And they may say pressure is the way to do that. So what do you think? So I think one takeaway from this uh, summit is that North Koreans care about sanctions relief. We were ready to give peace declaration. We were ready to open a liaison office. We were, right? So, but it fell apart. And so over sanctions. So I think sanctions advocate has a point here that they care about sanctions relief. But that's not where we are, right? Exactly what Victor said. I don't think there's any kind of, uh, we're not in the U.S. government. There's no one that supports sanctions relief at this point. So if that's what they care about and they're not, they're not going to be happy with just walking away with a liaison office or peace declaration. What's the give? How do we bridge this gap? I, I think that's going to be a problem. Um, and, but anyway, that, I, I do think that's, that's one main takeaway was that they, we at least saw what each other wanted. And clearly for North Koreans, sanctions relief is a top priority. I certainly agree with that. Um, we, we did learn that the sanctions are really hurting. The North Korean economy is, uh, is in really bad shape. And uh, at the same time, you know, I don't think we've been consistent in applying pressure, particularly after Singapore. The president declared the threat has, is gone. And then he was saying in the lead up to Hanoi that I'm in no hurry. It kind of gave the impression both to the North Koreans and to China and others who, who we need to enforce those sanctions even more harshly, uh, that he, they could let the pressure off. So I hope some lessons are learned about the need to be a bit more consistent and send a consistent message uh, to the North. I also think that uh, on the personal diplomacy, I mean, I think the two leaders have learned that love does not conquer all and that uh, you, you do have to focus on the details. You do need to have a real process. So while there's the risk that we get back into the same kind of uh, whack-a-mole, unsatisfactory uh, uh, results that we achieved uh, under previous administrations, uh, I think it's unavoidable to go back and try to hammer out a much more coherent, comprehensive deal, one that I think uh, shows the North Koreans that they can get the sanctions relief that they want, but they're going to have to do more. Uh, they have to pay for it uh, through much more serious steps on denuclearization. Just closing Yongbyon, which doesn't even capture the covert or clandestine uh, production facilities, and not touching the missiles, the warheads, the things that actually threaten the South and threaten us, uh, is not going to be enough. Dave, what are your sources telling you in the aftermath of this? Is it all love? What's you know, going on? What's interesting is before the summit, we wrote about the exchange of the love notes and the mash notes between the president and Kim, and the president liked to show them off in various meetings. Yeah. We tried to have uh, our photographers getting a shot of what was actually written in those. Um, but um, we did do some reporting, and uh, you know, we wrote a story, for example, about Steve Began's role. And you know, what we were told by the White, we had heard that um, you know John Bolton was certainly concerned that Began was and others were pushing too quick, quickly or seemed too eager for a deal and might give up too much. But uh, we were told by folks in the White House that it wasn't just Bolton. It was an interesting message um, that it, there was other concerns, concerns in commerce about the sanctions, concern at the Pentagon over the military drills and other matters, and uh, even concern among, from Pompeo. And so when you saw the president surrounded by that group, including Bolton at one of the bilat uh, extended uh, bilateral meetings, uh, it seemed like that, you know, that sort of view won out. And afterward, though, it's interesting because, um, you know, Pompeo gave an interview the other day, I think to USA Today, where he seemed surprised that North Korea had kind of drawn a, a tough line uh, about their negotiating uh, position in, you know, in public, uh, in their public comments. So, you know, but in that 
interview, I think, and, and other places, Pompeo has said he's trying to get a team over there fairly soon. But I think for the president's point of view, he, he's made clear that if, and he said this at the news conference afterward, that if North Korea holds off on the missile and nuclear testing and rebuilding a site is one thing, but if they don't do anything provocative, he seems willing to sort of uh, continue this negotiation and, uh, and ride this out because he's put so much into it. But that too emphasizes how he's kind of sent mixed signals because yeah. just stopping testing doesn't actually reduce the real threat. Uh, and of course, unilaterally giving up those exercises, which really do yeah. harm the readiness of U.S. and Korean forces. I mean, do you think that is, he is, thinks is stopping? Concession. Do you think that he thinks stopping testing reduces the threat? Well, he definitely thinks so, and it does reduce the threat to some degree because yeah. the North Koreans have not perfected ICBMs; they've only had a couple of right. tests. So, yes, we're better off that they continue this moratorium, but it doesn't solve the fundamental problem doesn't eliminate of, of a threat. major nuclear weapon state emerging on the Korean Peninsula that we want to. Um, I think it's an argument, too, the president can make to the public. We saw missiles in 2017 flying over Japan and um, reports of nuclear tests. We recall the, uh, the summit with Prime Minister Abe at Mar-a-Lago where they were using, you know, a cell phone flashlights to sort of go over public statements in the middle of a public dining room, which got a lot of attention. Um, you know, so the president and the president built up a lot of his campaign against this pressure campaign on North Korea, uh, saying how flagrant and, and provocative they had been right at the U.N. and at, in South Korea and at the, uh, at the State of the Union last year. So the president is now saying that's an achievement. <laughs> They're not doing that anymore. And as long as they don't, I think he can, say, can continue to try to argue. And he has been um, that this is something he's brought about and that he's reduced tensions. I think that's true. It doesn't, no testing doesn't invoke the political crisis that comes with a test, but that is, that is a situation where time is on the North Korean side, because even though they're not testing, they're still producing more fissile material, more weapons. You know, there's talk about how they produced more material between Singapore and Hanoi, right? So they're continuing to increase, you know, to increase their stockpiles. And on the testing, I, you know, so our, the work we've done here at CSIS shows that um, it's not just under the Trump administration. Anytime the United States is at the table talking to North Korea, the North Koreans don't test. They don't do major WMD tests. This is historic. Uh, historic. When you for both of you years. negotiated. Yeah, for 25 years, uh, that's been the case. So I, I know the president likes to say it's a big accomplishment of the policy, but it's actually just data. It's just an empirical fact that that's the case. But but again, I think this goes back to the, and I don't say this as, I don't say this with a great deal of excitement. I say it with a great deal of regret is that, so what, what I'm worried about is that we walk away from this meeting understanding now very clearly what the North Koreans want. As soon said, they don't want a peace regime, peace declaration, and they don't want liaison offices. The South Koreans may want that, but the North Koreans, they want sanctions relief and they want these five sanctions, which for the United States just re reinforces to us that this is really good leverage that we should that we could we should use that we could supplement you know to try to get to try to get what, what we want and i think the north koreans walk away from this meeting and they and they feel like well you know we've tried we put our dear leader in with the with the us president he hasn't moved on any of these issues you know we may have to just go back to using pressure again to to try to soften up the americans so you know i'm not predicting that we're going back to 2017 but i i do worry that we may see a a bad cycle and that that would not be unusual in the history of this negotiation crisis that we then cycle back from engagement to, you know, to, to a little bit of confrontation before we cycle back to the diplomacy again. But let's hope that these two guys, you know, their first date went better than their second date, but let's hope that they're not going to break off the relationship. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you always say they, the North Koreans never do anything for free. 
No, they don't. Um, I mean, <laughs> Victor knows this better than anybody. He's not they a cheap date. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, but what I do wonder about is um, just going forward. I, I have a little bit of different take. I, I just, you know, it would be very foolish for Kim Jong Un to return to provocations, right, in the form of missile and nuclear tests. Because all Kim has to do is kind of sit tight and continually engage in diplomacy and symmetry, continue to meet with Xi Jinping, go, you know, meet with President Moon and Putin and what have you. And, you know, he's on this path of normalizing himself. All of a sudden, he looks like a normal leader, right? We forget about who he really is, like a guy who killed his brother and uncle and so on. So all he has to do is kind of sit tight and not test, continue to build a nuclear missile program that doesn't really bother President Trump as long as he's it's not in-your-face testing, and then sort of run out the clock on this administration. Um, so that's why I'm not panicking yet they will return to provocations. I do wonder, though, what about the military exercises? Right now, we have decided to not continue with those, but there's another major military exercise coming up in the summer, fall. So after some status quo, after some months pass, are we going to just continually not exercise? Well, and if we do return to military exercise, then wouldn't that give North Korea sort of uh, uh, sort of excuse, so then sort of they can go back to provocation. And then in that scenario, China and others will say, well, okay, it's United States that return to military exercises first, right? So right now, what we have is freeze for freeze. We don't, we don't do exercises in return for no testing. What is that doing to us right now, not testing? What is the freeze do to us? We haven't exercised yeah. in how long now? How long has it been? Well, well almost a year. Yeah. Almost a year, right? What is that doing to us? Yeah, no, it definitely hurts the readiness of our forces and also the interoperability between U.S. and Korean forces. And it's especially important in Korea where most of our troops are there just for a one-year tour. So every year you have fresh troops who have to learn the terrain, how to, how to operate with the South Korean allies. You know, you can do it in other ways through simulations, through command post exercises, you know, computer-based exercises. But there's nothing like putting those troops in the field and learning how to uh, deal with the uh, harsh conditions side by side with their allies. So, I mean, it is a freeze for freeze, but we did it unilaterally. We didn't perhaps get as much in return for it than, uh, as we could have. And I worry that if we continue to suspend uh, the North Koreans are just going to pocket it, we actually reduce our leverage uh, on denuclearization. And they seem to be hell-bent on being recognized and continually being recognized as a nuclear weapon state. They're, even though there's a momentary freeze, they haven't stopped in their pursuit. Well, that's what people think is their ultimate goal, is to have their cake and eat it, too. You know, right. some kind of uh, deal that only reduces and limits their capability but leaves them as a nuclear weapon state. I don't think we should concede that because, you know, they, they've said that denuclearization is, is their goal, too. Uh, the conditions may be uh, hard to meet. Uh, but, you know, we should continue to say we don't accept them as a legitimate nuclear weapon state. Uh, but only as a de facto one, and continue to try to chip away and find the, the trade-offs that can get them to actually t take some steps to dismantle some of the, the real stuff that threatens us. Victor, what do you think about this? I agree. I mean, um, you know, I think most uh, people that I've talked to have said that if you go a full year without any real exercising, you are, you know, you are truly eroding readiness on the peninsula. And, and in case anybody forgets, the North Koreans have not stopped exercising, right? They, they're they have a winter training cycle that goes till the end of this month. So, um, so it's very asymmetrical uh, in that sense. I don't think it says a, sends a good message more broadly to not just alliance managers of Korea, but all of our alliances. If 
uh, if there's a willingness to just put willy-nilly alliance equities on the table as bargaining chips or as concessions, unilateral concessions for, you know, for very uncertain uh, nuclear negotiations. Well, what, wasn't freeze for freeze an idea that China and Russia yeah, advocated yeah, to yeah. begin with? Yes. Yeah. We rejected it. Yeah. And then I'm sure the Chinese or Russians are, you know, are, are very happy with this. But I, you know, I think where we're going to go from here, at least on in that, in that respect is, so I wrote a piece several years ago for the Dave's paper, the Washington Post, and the title of it, which was The Dilemma of American Reasonableness. And what it essentially was that we always get into these cycles with North Korea where you get to a point where um, North Korea takes a position that's fairly unreasonable, and then the United States stands on principle. And all the actors, the South Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, with the exception of Japan, the South Koreans, the Chinese, and the Russians, look at the situation, and they eventually come to the Americans and they go, you know, those North Koreans, they're rat bastards, they're terrible. Can you be a little bit more flexible, right, to the Americans? And so I fully anticipate that that's what's going to happen. You know, the Chinese, the South Koreans will start coming to Began and Pompeo and to Bolton and the president and say, you know, those North Koreans are rat bastards. You know, we know you, you know, you had these summits and everything. Can you be a little bit more flexible? I think that that's what we're going to start to see. And plus, the South may start pushing for waivers of some of the sanctions, even without getting any progress from the North. And that kind of creates frictions between Washington and Seoul, which is a recipe for not ever making progress. Yeah, I think yeah, I think this the South Koreans are in a very difficult position. They're probably the biggest loser of this the failure of the Hanoi summit. And I think for President Moon, it's a very delicate situation because he's got to try to pick up the diplomatic pieces. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of time because they have elections in Korea next year. And so that campaign cycle will start up fairly soon. So I think he's got one opportunity uh, to try to do some sort of high level, bringing the sides together. And if he succeeds, it's great. But if he fails, it's not going to position him and the party well going into the election season, especially, as Sue said, because they've thrown all their eggs in the North Korea basket. Well, so how are the South Koreans reacting to all this? I think they were caught off guard a little bit because I think South Koreans did expect some sort of interim deal where we were going to accept part of Yongbyon, we give some sanctions relief and peace declaration and so on. So I think this is an unexpected um, outcome. Um, but right now, what they're going to do is exactly what Victor said. I think they're going to try to play, play an intermediary role. They're going to try to sort of meet with Kim Jong-un, I think it's going to be very difficult for Kim to go to South Korea now because South Korea is not going to be able to offer a big concession, a big package. Uh, so he's not going to go to South Korea, but maybe there is a meeting to be had in Panmunjom, or maybe South Korea will send an envoy, high-level envoy to North Korea to see if can, they can bring North Koreans and bring the Americans back to the table. But again, you know, it's just, that's fine, but I, I, I'm just skeptical of potential outcome. We already met at the highest level and we couldn't bridge the, this gap. And, you know, on denuclearization, we still don't have an agreed upon definition of exactly. denuclearization. And this is after Hanoi summit, after Singapore summit, eight months went by, we still don't have an agreed upon definition of denuclearization. Now we don't have a roadmap, we don't have a timeline. You know, Victor mentioned the elections in South Korea. We have elections too, it's hard to avoid. Yeah. It's already underway, right? So, um, you know, the question, someone said, you know, well, Trump is gonna stay in this until he realized, someone was joking, I guess, but they said Trump will stay in this North Korea gamut until he realizes he won't get a Nobel prize, then he'll lose interest. Yeah. You know, and how, how does Trump want, you know, the domestic concerns are always big uh, for any White House in an election season. And 
and how does Trump want to characterize this North Korea play, right? Is it a win? And he's going to say, I, I did a lot. I, I changed the game here uh, and, and ride that out. Um, or does, you know, somehow he want, it's not going to be that instrumental in his reelection message. It's going to be immigration and the economy and Democrats and, uh, you know, out to get me and so on. And, and it's not that big a part. And I think, you know, someone was saying that Trump is headed to Japan, maybe May, um, for the, to meet the emperor, new emperor, uh, and that the South Koreans are trying to get him to swing by Seoul. I don't know that that would happen, but, um, you know, there's an interest in trying to keep Trump on board, right? And um, I think for the president, you know, you never know if he's going to, he wants to use this issue to distract from some sort of, you know, domestic issue, or if he gets a deal with China on trade, uh, if that gives less pressure to get a deal with North Korea. Um, there's a lot of factors going into this. President Trump, I'm just wondering about his mindset because now he really, I think one of the other takeaway from this Hanoi summit is he must have walked away realizing, okay, finally, that this is not an easy deal. That Nobel Peace Prize is, you know, might not be available for him. So with all the domestic turmoil, with the moral investigation and everything that's, that's gonna, that he's going to be facing this year, is he even going to be focused on North Korea? Right. That's one of my concerns. Other, but on the other hand, I mean, I think he must appreciate the fact that he got praised for walking away, even by right, Democrats. So maybe he learned something about... Well, yeah, the, White House. the art of the deal yeah. with, with yeah. Kim Jong-un is a little different than a real estate deal. <laughs> and uh, maybe we should take the initiative here. We've been very reactive in letting Kim Jong-un sort of define the agenda, even though the president has been delighted to have these grand photo ops. Um, but maybe before the North Koreans quite figure out what they're going to do next, and I think they're in a period of uh, reflection because the, the, the media has been silent for the last few days, we should be proactive and try to shape the agenda and say, look, you know, we can do a big deal or a small deal, but let's get the people back together and, and see whether we can get what you want. Maybe it's in five stages, maybe it's in three stages, but, but there's a way forward where both sides can end up uh, and We reported winners. in today's story that the president has privately expressed frustration at the coverage of this summit, and he's not so happy that the sort of uh, media coverage, but that the White House did make an effort to brief senators on their goals and that the senators did come out in a bipartisan way and praise Trump for walking away, as you mentioned. This is to all of you, Dave, start, but did you think that Trump was better prepared for this summit than he was for the last summit? And does he understand the nuance of, of policy when it comes to the North Koreans better now than he did in Singapore? That's a little bit of uh, difficult to answer, probably. I mean, I, you know, I think in Singapore, his goal and the, you know, the media's attention kind of was on the historic moment, honestly, you know, and um, to some degree, um, the pageantry of that um, did become the story, right? And so, of course, reporters made the point that this was a fairly hollow agreement that had, some of which had been already agreed upon in South Korea. Um, and so going into this, I mean, there was clearly pressure on the White House to do more, and they clearly um, made some changes by bringing Steve Began in, uh, who they felt and, and seemed to get very you know, positive reviews from everyone I talked to uh, in Washington, both sides of the aisle, um, as someone who is a serious, um, disciplined um, negotiator who may, may not have had an extended background in Asia, but um, understood the politics of Washington and understood how important this was to the president. Um, what, what was not clear, though, is what we keep getting back to, which was the you know, this interagency and sort of, you know, this sort of jargonistic kind of words we use for the NSC process, right? If there had been one under, under Bolton and whether they had come on the same page, and it did not seem clear that that was true. I mean, you know, the president clearly, you know, wanted some sort of deal and his, his uh, advisors were uh, a little bit more skeptical all, all along. So, um, but in the end, we saw, as, as you say, that the president sort of surprised folks by walking away. And he, I mean, he did have this long plane ride to Hanoi with Ambassador Bolton there. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure if he wasn't prepped before, he was being prepped. And the fact that he brought on, brought out Yongbyon Plus, right? And just 
even bring that covert side um, nuclear. Explain, the, explain, explain what Yongbyon Plus means. Well, I think the North Koreans thought the deal was had to be had with the Yongbyon nuclear um, complex aspect of Yongbyon. But I think President Trump brought up it can't be Yongbyon. If you want these five sanctions relief, it has to be the whole thing. And then there's a second um, enrichment site that the Trump, President Trump brought it up. And I think the North Koreans, from what I understand, were caught a little bit off guard for by that because they thought what they were going to talk about is just a new, new, uh, young nuclear complex. It was particularly significant and surprising that the president seemed to have actually made some use of intelligence from the U.S. Right. intelligence community instead of uh, showing the North Koreans, you know, we know more about your program than you think we do, and that's why your offer is inadequate. So it's too, too one-sided. So that was new. Uh, a new use of his intelligence. I haven't heard him say anything good about the intelligence. At least he used intelligence. Well, but he had to, right? Yeah. Because yeah. As, as Dave said, this is the second meeting. So the expectations were there has to be something tangible coming out of it. You laid out the principles in the first meeting, so now you have to make progress. So, of course, it was going to get more uh, more specific. I, I feel like going forward, like if, if this does not go in a bad direction and it heads on the direction of diplomacy, um, you know, we have to start thinking about like what can we actually get? that goes beyond simply some old buildings at Yongbyon or some old test sites that they don't need anymore. And all the experts that I talk to feel like, you know, the one practical thing that we really need going for is we've got to stop them from producing more material, more bombs or more material. And then, so I think the question then for the, for the United States side is if we decide in the interagency or through whatever truncated NSC process there is that that's the thing tangibly that we need to go after, what are we willing to give up in terms of sanctions, because we know that's what they want, what are we willing to give up for a verifiable fissile material uh, production ban? I think the administration made a mistake early on in saying it was all or nothing when it came to sanctions. So I think we do have to think of some kind of incremental approach to sanctions. Anything we do early on should be reversible. We should have snapback provisions, whatever whatever you need. Uh, but. In the, at the end of the day, the North Koreans are just as transactional as Donald Trump, and I think there's going to have to be some quid pro quos. Uh, I think we should be going after delivery systems as well, the things that actually bring those bombs to Earth in South Korea or Japan or the United States. Sometimes enlarging a problem, as President Eisenhower used to say, is, is one way to uh, make it more easy to solve. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to our audience questions in just a second. Dave, I want to ask you one last thing, though. You, while you were on the trip, you asked President Trump a question about Auto One Beer. People ask me, why did I ask that? You know, yeah. It was at the news conference afterward. I had been in the press pool, so we traveled with the president in the motorcade over to the uh, the news conference. And we got in there, there were hundreds of reporters already waiting. And the president came out. We didn't know how long he'd be there. Some were saying he may just do a statement and leave. Uh, in the motorcade, we actually got some sense from the aides that they might call the whole thing off. But they went through with it. And to Trump's credit, he spent an hour answering questions. But a number of questions had been a- asked and answered, uh, including from David Sanger, some specific questions about um, the, the nuclear issues and the negotiations. I had been interested, I mean, in, in asking the president about Otto Warmbier from the first summit, honestly. And uh, he had a long news conference there. But uh, sort of brushed off questions about human rights. And he had made such a big deal out of Otto's case, um, as people remember, in 2017 and through to the uh, 20, experience of State of the 2018, Union. A State of the Union. I had done a story uh, in January 2019, State of the Union, about how he had um, the centerpiece of the past one had been not just Otto's parents, but uh, Ji Sung Ho, the um, uh, South Korean or North Korean defector and now ad- activist in South Korea. And I'd right. said, you know, I'd asked, uh, we, we got in touch with him, uh, our, our career correspondent, and he said that he had been back to the White House once for the First Lady's holiday 
holiday party in December, but the president didn't talk to him, and he had expressed some. He, he was still hopeful, but expressed some concern that human rights were, were you know, being uh, brushed off. So um, I had been in touch with with Otto's family, and I was interested. So I asked the president if he had confronted Kim about Otto's death and whether he held him responsible and why he called him in a tweet, Kim Jong Un, my friend. Uh, the president um, did not necessarily seem ready for that question, but then did say that he brought it up and that you know, people saw the reaction that he brought it up and, um, and that Kim had uh, denied knowledge of any kind of abuse and that he felt badly about it and he took him at his word. And, uh, you know, when I was, we, were, we had to leave immediately after in the motorcade for, to return to Washington uh, on Air Force One and my colleagues were scrambling to do with a lot of stories and they probably already had it in mind, but I said, I think we should do a full story on that. And we did. Um, and we've since uh, done, done several more. As we know, the family uh, came out the next day and, and uh, delivered a statement. We have a, a brilliant audience here today, including former Ambassador Bob King is here, former Ambassador Mark Lippert is here. Um, we have some great questions. This one is, is very direct. It seems pretty clear that North Korea will not denuclearize. Question is, is it time to accept North Korea as a nuclear power and then work from there on limiting and controlling it, sort of a Pakistan model? Victor, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm reminded of a time when the North Koreans said, and I talk about this in my book, so it, that when the North Koreans said to us, you should treat us more like Pakistan, and we said to them, you don't want us to treat you like Pakistan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think it's, I mean, increasingly many people, policy experts are of this view. I mean, I think it's very hard for the United States formally to recognize North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. Our policy will always be that we seek CVID or final and fully verified, whatever your favorite acronym is for this problem. Um, but when we start talking about, you know, fissile material ban or, um, or, or something on missile ranges or, or, or things of this nature, you know, that, that is trying to control the problem rather than eliminating it. I think the goal will always be to eliminate it. Um, uh, but practically speaking, you need to take interim steps that people will characterize as sort of de facto exceptions. They can characterize it any way they want. For all of us around the table and Mark and, um, and Bob King and others who've worked on this issue, you know, your first job is you've got to limit the threat. You've ha you have to limit it. You have to stop it from growing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, we shouldn't abandon the goal, particularly when Kim Jong-un continues at least to pay lip service to it and has uh, you know, signed many North-South declarations to that effect as well in the Singapore statement. We do have to clarify what he means by denuclearization, and we do have to accept that this isn't going to be solved overnight. So even if we begin to engage again and start uh, getting some uh, positive actions on both sides, we still won't know the answer to the question of whether he's ever going to be ready to give them all up. Uh, but, you know, this kind of time could be different. I think we, we are dealing with a somewhat different Kim than his father and grandfather. He's young. He doesn't want to uh, preside over a, you know, isolated pariah state ba basket case uh, for generations, and he might not be able to do that. I mean, I think we're seeing the sort of collapse of the state economy within North Korea uh, as markets are emerging, but it's kind of like one giant black market. It's not really a market economy. So we have leverage. We should see how far we can get. Uh, interim stages may just reduce the threat. Hopefully the most destabilizing systems can be t taken off the, off the playing field early. And uh, we'll, we'll see uh, what, what's possible. But uh, it, it should be our goal, because I think there's risks of proliferation in the region. If they're accepted for the long haul as a nuclear weapon state, and it does create pressures on South Korea or Japan uh, to go nuclear. Uh, and I think uh, you know, we'd, we'd rather not go down that road. Uh, I would also say that uh, you mentioned Bob King. One thing the president could do uh, to show that uh, 
we are interested in human rights is to appoint a successor to Bob King as a special envoy for human the rights. Congress has authorized the appointment of a new ambassador for human rights to North Korea, which Bob King occupied that role in the previous administration, has not yet been appointed. Sue, do you want to weigh in on this question? No, I 100 percent agree. I don't think we can drop it as a goal, even if in reality we are pursuing a threat reduction policy to sort of reduce the threat. Um, just because of exactly what, what Ambassador was just talking about, there is a whole, whole lot of implications of really accepting it as a policy and you declare North Korea as a nuclear weapons reduce power. Reduce legitimacy for the sanctions. Absolutely. <laughs> reduce legitimacy for sanctions. But it's a, the regional proliferation is a great point because this is, South Korea is not always going to be under this particular government. It could be under a very conservative government in the future. And let's say North Korea is accepted as a nuclear weapons power. There's a real possibility that South Korea might say, you know, we might have to go nuclear ourselves. And then what happens with Japan? Um, then it's, we're talking about regional proliferation. We're also sending a very wrong message to rogue actors out there that eventually, I mean, even if that's the reality, um, that you know, all you have to just do it and, and you, you have no. So, yeah, so you, just, <laughs> you can wear us down. So I just want to see it as a possibility where the U.S. government actually says that this is our policy and yes, you're now North Korea is a nuclear weapons power. This is a related question someone else asked. What's the downside of normalizing relations with North Korea? Well, I think, you know, so one of them is when the United States makes a decision like that, I don't, I think it's our decision, but it's also something that, you know, we want to make sure that our allies all feel the same way about it. And so obviously the sore point here would be Japan, right? I don't think Japan would be ready for a U.S. DPRK normalization. It's difficult going back to the earlier point. It's difficult for me to imagine a normalized political relationship without something in terms of improvement of the human rights situation. Um, so it's difficult to get past that. Um, and then from a really transactional perspective, I think what Hanoi showed us is that North Koreans don't really care about that. Right? They're not really looking for a normalized relationship. What they want is something very transactional and very material. Right, which is uh, sanctions relief. There was a, a pointed moment in the, that second time we got to see Kim Jong-un in the meeting with Trump, and people may have been watching it, but we're, we're, my colleagues were throwing out more questions for Kim Jong-un, and uh, they asked him about um, would, would he be willing to have a liaison office from Washington in Pyongyang, you know, which had, we thought it was just like one of the main things that had already been agreed on. And uh, so I think one of Kim's aides uh, tried to cut off the question uh, and this, and then Trump, uh, you know, instead of ending it, uh, said, I, I'm interested in this. You know, like, I, and I was, at first I was saying, well, what is Trump saying? Like, He's never heard this idea before, but it, instead it looked like one of the passive-aggressive plays by the president to put Kim on the spot, which was really awkward given the you know, chummy kind of atmosphere he'd been trying to do. But the president does that, and he uses the media the way he, he wants. And so put him on the spot a little oddly, and Kim said it was very welcomable or something like that. But uh, soon after they said, uh, you know, Kim himself said, give us a minute, please leave. You know? right. And that's the last time we saw him. Dave, how are you and your colleagues at The Post going to continue to continue to cover this story, you know, as we said, you know, might drop out of the news for some time now with politics and other issues going on. It's an interesting arc. And, I, you know, my story today talked about the three prongs, immigration, trade and um, and uh, North Korea. And you know, the reason I did, because th those are the things the president has vested the most time in, you know, rhetorically, but also to, to agree policy wise. Right. And on immigration, it's executive actions and things, but and it's symmetry and it's uh, tariffs. Um, and so, you know, the, the arc of the North Korea story is interesting because it is a moment where 
where the president seemed to take something from President Obama, and although he maybe wants to show that he can do something Obama did not, it was that first meeting with Obama that seemed to put North Korea into his, his mindset right, foremost. And in the campaign, he really had talked about China and Japan and others, right, and terrorism and ISIS, but he did not talk that much about North Korea, and all of a sudden it became issue number one. So to us, I think, just to, to answer your question, is how do you judge a president's record, right? I mean, there's the, the outside stuff with Trump's dealing with, but how do you judge his record? And I think North Korea has to be clearly one of the main pillars of that, and I think we'll continue to write it. You know, in these campaigns, uh, domestic concerns tend to far outweigh the, the, uh, the foreign policy, but I think we, as a paper, will continue to cover it uh, significantly, that's for sure. That's going to be it for uh, this session. Um, with your applause, will you please thank our panelists today? If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at CSIS.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.